Well, good morning. Welcome to South Suburban Christian Church, our online ministry. We are excited and happy that you have joined us today, uh, wherever you are. We are about to begin a new series entitled The Gospel. And I'm looking forward, I've been amped up about this for several weeks, and looking forward to uh, sharing with you over the next eight weeks uh, as we take our time going through the book of Ephesians. Uh, the book of Ephesians is uh, a New Testament book written by Paul. I uh, would encourage you to turn to it. Um, you know, the, the best way to remember where it is, well, certainly you can look it up in the table of contents, but as you go through your New Testament, you hit the Gospels first, and then uh, Romans first and second Corinthians, and then it's Great Electric Power Company. So it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So that'll help you find those four books. That's how I remember it. So if you found it by now, we're looking at chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Here ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word. May He add His blessings and understanding to it. Oh my goodness, there's a ton of stuff in here. We could spend eight weeks just on those verses. Um, I want to... Uh, um, break down uh, these verses. I also want to encourage you to look at the notes that are prepared for this series. You can get those in our YouVersion Bible app um, and uh, look at those. If, if you're not able to get to it, send our uh, office an email at office at southsuburban.com and we'll email those to you. We really want you, I really want you to really spend some uh, significant time in your own personal study and prayer digging into Ephesians and working through it, letting God speak to you through His Word. A couple of points I want to share with you. The, the, the first point as we begin this gospel series is to define what we mean when we say the gospel. The gospel is Christ. Now, in the fifth sermon of our derailed series uh, several weeks ago, you may be able to uh, re-watch that on our YouTube, uh, uh, youtube.com/southsuburbanchristianchurch. That uh, uh, we we, we define that in that message. The first point was also the gospel is about Christ. The gospel is Christ. 
So as we begin this exciting journey through the book of Ephesians in this new series, I have a couple of things that I'm kind of hoping will happen. Um, You know, the interesting uh, thing about the church world is that certain words sort of take on general meanings. I mean, the word gospel gets thrown around a lot in these uh, days and in the church and outside of the church, and it's become basically synonymous with anything good or anything that might be true. You know, things like that's the gospel truth. Now, those things may be a result of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. The word gospel literally means the good news. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, uh, writes that the gospel is, quote, the story about Christ, God's and David's son, who died and was raised and established as Lord. This is the gospel in a nutshell. Another great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, says the gospel is Christ is our Redeemer, formed in the incarnation in order to deal precisely, perfectly, and fully with both the cause of our guilt and the consequences of our sin. Union with Christ was the means the Spirit used to bring this about. Our own forebear of the Christian church movement, Alexander Campbell, says that the gospel, quote, is Christ granting and gifting life to those who believe. Now, in each of those definitions by these very notable theologians and preachers over the past 500 years, or well, actually from their perspective, 400 years, we could, uh, th- th- those folks would have had significant disagreements on a lot of points of faith and practice. But they all agreed on the definition of the gospel. It isn't just about Christ, a historical presentation, if you will, of the life of Christ, or as some say today, the historic Jesus. It is Christ. Now, I've typically defined the gospel as who Christ is, what Christ has done, and how Christ's merits become our own through faith and faith alone. That is, Christ is God in the flesh, who suffered and died for the sins of the world, rose again, ascended to glory, and is gathering himself that, gathering us into himself that we too will live forever. Now look, as we as a congregation start looking toward the second phase of our strategic plan, We've already begun talking about how we will reach into our surrounding neighborhoods, our context, to call people to faith in Christ. Our mission here at South Sub Church, as has been since the time that we were founded, the mission of this congregation is to bring people to Jesus Christ and together become passionate followers of Him. We're already seeing God's calling us into this future that resonates not only in our mission, but but the second phase of our strategic plan. 70% of our Vacation Bible School families were folks with no connection at all to this congregation. 14 of those families, which can be well over 20, 25 children, have absolutely no connection to any church whatsoever. God has already started bringing more visitors to our services of worship than we ever saw before the pandemic. And as we prepare for this work to which God is calling us, we want to be crystal clear about what it is, or more accurately, who it is that we are communicating. So my goals for this series 
are that we will see clearly the biblical definition of the gospel. What the gospel is and what a gospel-centered life looks like. Now, we can find these things throughout the New Testament. But over these next eight weeks, we're going to be looking specifically at this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a bustling port city in Asia Minor, which is today uh, Turkey. It was a place at the time where Jews and pagans, Roman pagans, all lived together rather peacefully. And as the church was birthed there in that city and began to grow, the church itself there in Ephesus was made up of both Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians, or the formerly pagans who had become Christians. And the interesting thing is, is that these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are actually getting along reasonably well. And so Paul was not dealing with any significant problems at the church of Ephesus, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to, to look at Ephesus so that or Ephesians, so that we don't get distracted by some of the other church problems that you might find in books like 1 Corinthians or, or Colossians. Paul is going to lay out in this letter the basis of what the gospel is, and he does that clearly in chapter 1, interestingly, in the form of a prayer. Uh, it would have, it, it's almost exactly in the parameters of an ancient Jewish prayer of thanksgiving, or prayer of blessing, I'm sorry. And then he's going to show what the gospel life looks like, and he's going to do that in multiple ways. He's going to address some questions that I think are important even for us today. What are the consequences of a gospel-centered life? What is our posture as people who live a gospel-centered life? What does the church look like? What does a gospel-centered church look like? What does our life generally as gospel-centered people look like? What does our daily life look like? What does the gospel-centered family look like? And what are the challenges for which we need to be prepared as we await Christ's return as a gospel-centered people? So let's quickly look at uh, really three points in my second point. Number one, we are chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. Now, if you have your Bible still open or you have your Bible app open, go back and let's look at these verses. We're looking at verses 3 through 14. Look at verse 4. The Father chose us. Now look at verse 7. Jesus Christ has redeemed us. And now look at verse 13. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. Now, now the first thing that I hope that you will see is the absolute beauty of the Trinitarian nature of this prayer. People say, where's the Trinity in the Bible? <laughs> well, right here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is screaming the Trinity at us. This is really important. This is, this is why the Trinity is important, and this is really important, and I'm going to actually uh, uh, tell you why it's important when I finish uh, this point at the end of this point. So let's first look at those three things. Number one, the Father chose us. This word chose has really caused a lot of arguments in the church over the past 500 years, particularly when it's connected with the word predestined in verse 5. 
The word chose is used in some other situations in the New Testament that I think will help us see it in a biblical light. Now, in this word's basic form, it is used a little over 1,300 times in the New Testament. Don't worry, I'm not going to break down each one of those. But this exact word, the exact word that is used here in verse 4 for chose, is only used just a couple of times, probably less than a dozen times, depending on how you uh, want to look at the word's construction. Now, it literally means, I mean, if we were to translate it just literally, it means to call together in one place. We've translated that word, chose. Uh, it, it, the, the root word, uh, the, the, the basic construction of this word is the word Greek word lego, which means to speak intelligently. Uh, another root word that it relies on is the word logos. I'm pausing there for effect. That should catch our attention because we know that the Greek word logos means the word and that logos is one of the names of Jesus. It is how John in the beginning of his gospel talks about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the word. So put that in your mind as we're trying to read this word, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus uses this word, chose, to call together his disciples. It's translated in Luke. In Luke chapter 10, Mary, the sister of Martha, is described as having chosen the right thing when she chose to listen to Jesus instead of running around the house trying to get uh, the dinner ready for all who had gathered. I, I know that's probably another sermon. In Acts chapter 10, the word is used to describe God having chosen Israel as his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul uses it there to describe how God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It means that God has called us. That God has called you. Well, how? By speaking to us through the Word. Jesus Christ. This is very important. God is calling us to Himself through His Word. He is calling to us together through the Word. Through the Logos. The Word. It's all about Jesus. Redeemed by Jesus in verse 7. It's a really straightforward word and it means to get back through an exchange. We redeem coupons. We redeem gift certificates. That is, is, we get something because someone else paid for it for us. It wasn't free. It was just free to us. Now, it's used most commonly, especially in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, uh, to redeem a slave. Now, here's where the rubber really hits the road, folks. Suddenly, it gets a little uncomfortable for us. Remember the words that uh, we read from John chapter 8 in uh, the sermon, Freedom and Democracy sermon from uh, uh, just last week, 
where Jesus is talking to the Hebrews and he talks about redeeming them, setting them free. And they respond, we are children of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone. Remember that? Sure you haven't. We saw that, didn't we? And yet we say the same thing. Lots of Christians today aren't comfortable with this redemption language. Some of us like to think that we are free agents and we have logically chosen ourselves to follow Jesus. And when He starts doing stuff that we don't like, well, then we can just step away for a season. No, that's not the image that Paul is conveying here. The image that Paul is conveying here is that you and I are sitting in in tattered rags, dirty and smelly in a putrid jail cell under a rotting castle with an evil king who has demanded full payment because we have crossed his, uh, we have trespassed on his land. We, we have failed to pay a debt to him. And until we pay the full payment, he will not let us out of that jail cell. We are slaves. We are imprisoned. And how are we to pay it? Because we're in this jail cell, we can't work. And so he comes after other aspects of our life. He's taking our self-worth. He comes after our families. He destroys our marriages. And he alienates us from our children. And then, then we hear the word. We hear the calling. We hear the chosenness. The Father is calling us together through the word. And the word comes and pays the fine and buys us out of slavery the word jesus christ redeems us the christian solidarity international is an organization that advocates for freedom and human dignity worldwide alongside some of its other normal relief efforts for food and 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 uh, uh, other supplies in times of disaster and poverty one of the most significant parts of this organization's ministry is redeeming. That is, it is focused on buying back slaves throughout the world. Today, in the Sudan alone, there are more than 20,000 people who are slaves. Many of them are Christians who are held by Muslim slave owners. Christian Solidarity International can buy back each slave for only 50 U.S. dollars. 50 U.S. dollars buys the freedom of one human being. And yet, at the same time, this organization gets significant pushback from governments, and trust me, the issues are significant. But most notably, many of the governments in the European Union are adamantly opposed to this work that Christian Solidarity International is engaged in. For many of them, the idea of buying someone is morally reprehensible. So reprehensible that even buying them out of slavery is something they refuse to support and do. I, frankly, I don't know how they sleep at night. They feel justified that they have maintained a moral high ground by not buying another human being while that human being continues to languish in slavery. I see the same attitude when folks are confronted with the reality that Jesus had to die so that we could live. 
You know what? For that slave who has been bought out of freedom in the Sudan, I'm pretty sure it's not morally reprehensible to them. They've just been set free. And the same is true for the believer when they come to understand the significant gift that Jesus has given them. And as horrific as it is, we're driven to our knees with thanksgiving. Verse 13 sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, most of us think of this as some sort of wax that we put on ourselves that seals in the shine like you would do with your car or your truck. Or that we're put into a container that we close the lid and seal it so we won't spoil like some leftover dinner. Well, let me just say this is not what the word seal means. A better word might, or a better way to translate this might be We have been notarized by the Holy Spirit. You see, that word sealed is a reference to the waxy seal that would have been adhered to ancient documents with the seal of the governing authority. And so when you open the document, you see that red seal with the impression. It is a way of saying that the one who is in charge has made this so it is good it is our guarantee in this document did you notice that paul uses that same word a guarantee he writes in verse 13 i'm sorry verse 14 a guarantee of our inheritance and that phrase goes back to verse 5 of the same prayer the same chapter where we have been, quote, adopted as God's children through Jesus Christ. Now, in the time of Christ and in the time of Paul, it was common to adopt a child that was not biologically yours. Parents regularly died. Children were regularly forced to either go to the families of loved ones or, in some cases, be adopted by strangers. There's a little bit of Roman law that might help us here as we think about this. If in the time of Paul you adopted a child, that made that child completely and fully legally yours. It was binding. And when the governor of the province or the, 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 the prefect put his seal on that document, that child was yours. That child was yours as much as if he or she had come from your own body. As a matter of fact, it wasn't uncommon for rulers of the ancient world who had biological children who had kind of grown up to be a disappointment. They would adopt a child and give that adopted child the right of inheritance, both in terms of wealth and position. Interestingly, a younger biological child could not supersede an older biological child in right or inheritance but a younger adopted child could be the sole inheritor even before the eldest biological child that was the power of adoption in the time of christ in the time of paul and paul is using this language he's using this imagery on purpose in many ways paul could be subtly saying 
just as the Jews are the biological children of God, the Gentiles are the adopted children of God. And so Paul, a Jew himself, is gently reminding his fellow Jewish brethren of how Roman law works. But at the same time, he says that through Christ, through the Word, all of us receive the rights of adoption, and that this sealed, this notarized, this authorized, this made legal and without revocation document, this without revocation seal is by the authority of the Holy Spirit. Now, now before I move on to point three, remember I told you I was going to share with you the beauty of the Trinitarian imagery here? Now, now lots of folks hear about Jesus redeeming us, his death, and they criticize this as some sort of divine child abuse. Now, there's a whole lot of things I could say about that. But they say that somehow God the Father whips and kills God the Son so we can be free, and, and, and they just don't like that imagery. Well, let me say, first of all, that that critique is, is actually heretical because it implies some sort of hierarchy in the Trinity, and there is no hierarchy in the Trinity. The Father is not more powerful than the Son. The Father is not more God than the Son. The Son is not some sort of half-God, and the Holy Spirit is a third of a God. That, that's not how that works. So the child abuse charge ignores the clear New Testament witness to the unique identity of Jesus as the second person of the Godhead. First, not only was Jesus not a child, that's something we can talk about later too, but he was not a mere human. He was God, the eternal Logos, the eternal Word, the divine Son, the Lord before whom every knee will one day bow, Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. This is no helpless victim. This is the Father's equal. This is one who in the most profound sense is one with God, one in whom God judges himself, one in whom God condemns himself, one in whom God lets himself be abused. That is, it is God who has come to redeem us. The critics cannot be allowed the luxury of a selective use of the New Testament. The same scriptures portray the cross as an act of God the Father and also portray the sufferer as God the Son. And the resulting doctrine cannot be wrenched from its setting in the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. The abused child is very God of very God. It is divine blood shed at Calvary, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, as God surrenders himself to the worst that humans can do and bears the whole cost of saving the world. But to what purpose? My final point. To unite all things to him. Now that word unite is the Greek word oikos. You can say it with me, oikos. We get the English word ecumenical from the Greek word oikos. The word literally means house management. That's an interesting uh, definition, particularly since it's translated unite. What it means, though, is it means to be brought into a household, a family, under the authority of the head of the household. In Acts chapter 10, we read about Cornelius being converted. Remember that? And his household with him. This means everyone, his wife, his children, both biological and adopted, his servants, his in-laws, his parents. If he had a servant who had a family, it would have included them as well. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor, writes in his book Gospel and Life about oikos evangelism. 
We're going to be talking about that as we go through this series as well. Because oikos evangelism, united evangelism, household evangelism, is about relationship. It's neighbor evangelism. It's family evangelism. It's co-worker evangelism. It's evangelism through relationship. It is evangelism that is important because it means something. Because the people to whom we are talking mean something to us. It's not some stranger on the street that we're handing a tract to and we could care less because we don't even remember their name. This is our family, our household. It relates to kinship. It relates to geographic location, the neighborhoods in which our congregation finds itself, our professional relationships, our associational relationships. And it assumes some things. It assumes that we are under observation by those closest to us, that our lives become attractors, attractors and the evidence is in how we live our life and it is long term it is a conversation and it demands our humility this is what we're getting ready for our vision to recognize those around this congregation around this campus as our neighbors, that we are entering into a long-term relationship with, they are a part of our oikos, our household. And in that, God is uniting us. And brothers and sisters, we've just scratched the surface in this great letter that Paul writes to Ephesus, and maybe to us as well. Amen.